Welcome, friends, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott Sullivan, Discipleship Catalyst with the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, and our team exists to strengthen Georgia Baptist churches in the area of discipleship. We've developed three tools just for you. The Watershed Principle, which identifies the six main ministries of the church that must be healthy to produce world-impacting disciple-makers. The Spark Conference. Last year's conference saw over 33,000 views from 45 different states and 18 countries. This year's conference will premiere on August the 12th with best-selling author Tony Evans, Ben Mandrell, president of Lifeway, and David Kinneman, the president of the Barna Group. We also have learning communities that are set up throughout Georgia, which exist to help you finish the task of leading your family in ministry well. You can see our website to find one near you. Also, every Thursday at 3 p.m., you can catch this broadcast through Facebook, Instagram, or multiple podcast platforms. Now, let's join today's broadcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to today's broadcast. Thank you so much for being with us. My name is Matthew Gibbs, and I am the discipleship consultant from the East Central region of Georgia, and we're very blessed to have some special guests with us today. First of all, I want to introduce to you Mark Clifton. Mark is the Senior Director of Replanting at the North American Mission Board. Mark served as a pastor, church planner, church revitalizer, mission strategist, and even a coach and a mentor to young people. He has planted and replanted numerous churches, has also served as a national and regional leader for church planting and missions. And welcome to, uh, to our broadcast today, Mark. Appreciate you being here. Hey, man. It is great to be with you. Thank you very much. And then I also want to introduce the guy that we now call the church planting guy at Georgia Baptist, Rolando Castro. He's the church planting specialist uh, on our missions team here at the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. And uh, I've heard it said that he's really taken us to the next level in that area. Uh, Rolando has about 17 years of experience in church planting. Uh, he's planted two churches himself, and then he's also uh, been a part of sending teams to plant two other churches. With the North American Mission Board, uh, he works with them. He's worked with the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware, and we're glad to have him now here uh, in, in the good old South in the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. So, Rolando, thank you for being here as well. Thank you so much, Matthew. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited about church planting in Georgia. Well, we're very blessed to have you uh, right here in Georgia. Hey, folks, just as a reminder, uh, I want to thank you for your giving to the CP, the Cooperative Program. It's your gifts and your dollars uh, that uh, actually make the stuff that we're doing uh, and the resources that we're providing for you available. So thank you for doing that. We also have a, a stack of resources that we want to give away. So uh, today as part of our broadcast, I want to encourage you to leave a comment. And when you do that, you'll be entered into a drawing at the end of the broadcast. As we get started today, I want to ask uh, each of you guys, if you would, uh, just to take about 60 seconds, give us a little bit of your backstory and how you ended up where you are now and I, I tell you what we'll do we'll start with Rolando and you can give us a little bit of the backstory how you got here All right uh let me let me let me go back to uh when I came to this country actually it was back in 2003 I was in Costa Rica my entire life um I became a Christian in Costa Rica and um and after some years I started serving in the church um not as a pastor but as a leader and uh about 
2002, I received an invitation from a, a, a local association in Southern Maryland to go and explore, uh, exploring the possibility of becoming a, a church planter. And um, my wife and I came, uh, came to the United States, prayed about it, and, and, and voila, we were here and planted our first uh, church in Southern Maryland. Um, three years later, uh, the state convention, uh, Baptist Convention of Maryland of Delaware, uh, asked me to join the, their team and to coordinate all the Hispanic church planting in the state. So uh, that was a, uh, um, how do you say that? I mean, a, it was a position shared by NAM and the state convention at that time. So I did that for several years. And then um, about, I guess, six years, six, seven years, um, I became 100% NAM. I was one of the church planting um, ca um, catalysts in the north uh, northeast of the country, uh, planting all kinds of churches, not only Hispanic. And, um, and it, was, it was a great, great, great time. So um, about November, September, October, I, I don't remember very well, 2019, I was contacted by, by Georgia Baptist, Buck Birch called me and, um, and started, started talking to me about, you know, becoming the mission consultant for the Northwest of Georgia. So after praying again and, and, and consulting with my family, we decided that was God's move. And, uh, and we were ready to go. Uh, and, and we came here in March, 2020 and started serving in, in missions until April this year when um, the leadership of Georgia Baptist Mission Board asked me to join uh, this new position actually, you know, and try to create a whole uh, church planting system in the state. Well, we're very blessed to have you and appreciate you uh, uh, being here uh, and being a part of, of what we're trying to do in our state. Mark, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory? I know you've got a big one. I, I've read a little bit of your bio. Oh, a lot of I just, I just been around a long time. I'm old. So I started out as 18. Uh, that was my best years. It's been downhill since then. But I, uh, I'm a native of Kansas, Missouri, Kansas out here. But I did serve in Georgia. I, in the 80s, I, was the, uh, I worked for the Georgia Baptist Convention. I was a church planning catalyst for... Uh, uh, Etowah Hightower and Roswell Associations and planted churches in those areas in the 80s. Really enjoyed that. And then I went from there to work for the old home mission board and directed church planting projects west of the Mississippi. <clears throat> and I went from there to be the state missions director in Kansas, Nebraska, and uh, loved that for over a decade and served planting churches and helping guys plant churches and working with associations. And then my wife and I went uh, to Canada as Mission Service Corps, uh, and we planted churches in Montreal and in Eastern, Eastern Canada. And then the North American Mission Board asked us to stay in Canada, work with the Canadian Convention. So we became the church planting national leaders for church planting in Eastern Canada for a while. Then I came back to Kansas City to be the Associate Direct, Association of Director of Missions in about 2005. And that's when I encountered all these dying churches in the association. And my heart turned from, re, from planting churches to replanting churches. And so I've uh, been here in Kansas City. We live out west of Kansas City, out in this rural area. Been here since, uh, since 2005. Uh, but about five or seven years ago, the, uh, Kevin at the North American Mission Board, never met him, didn't know him. He called me one day and said, hey, we got 900 churches a year that close their doors. Uh, I heard what you've done at Warnell and replanting that church. Could we talk? 
And that led to a discussion, which led to a strategy, which led to me leading a new initiative at NAM, which we've been doing now for about five years, just trying to focus energy and, and attention on, on the potential of dying churches. And then state conventions and associations all across North America are really throwing energy into approaching dying churches. And the reality of it is, been a Southern Baptist all my life, for the majority of my life, state conventions and associations didn't know what to do with dying churches. But now, uh, now we are, and we see God has some great plans for that. And so it's a real exciting time to be part of replanting dying churches. And so that's what I get to do. And uh, I'm pastoring a dying church. Well, hopefully it's not dying now, but it was. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, I left Warnell when I took this job at NAM. But there's a little church just about uh, 10 miles from me that closed its doors during COVID, had three remaining members. And uh, I, I went and volunteered to be their pastor. I'll tell you about that later. But I'm the pastor of the Linwood Baptist Church in Linwood, Kansas. We had about 40 there on Sunday morning yesterday, and it's the joy of my life. Count of 400 people. So I'm, that's, I'm, I'm their pastor, and I'm also the leader of Replant. Well, thanks again for sharing that, and welcome. Hey, I'm just going to jump right into the questions here, and we'll kind of toss these things back and forth. I'm going to start with you, Mark. I know recently that you mentioned uh, something in our state uh, Sunday School Director's pr presentation that you gave, uh, and there was some research that you shared showing that as many as possibly 20 to 25% of our church members are not returning post-COVID. Uh, I know in many of our Georgia Baptist churches, the same thing is true. And a lot of our pastors are concerned, they're struggling, maybe even a little uh, uh, discouraged by this because uh, things like low attendance is, comes some things that come along with that is less enthusiasm maybe within the congregation, less impact as a church, uh, and maybe even um, just a, uh, less relational equity because the pastor so desires to see those people minister to them. So, so can you give us some insight into the dilemma and maybe, maybe some wisdom for that leader that's facing that? Yeah, I really want to make this loud and clear for everybody in the back. If there, if you have 20 or 30% that aren't coming back, it's not your fault. Okay. It's not your fault. You didn't do something wrong. Look, there are going to be outliers out there. You're going to hear stories where we're bigger now than we were before COVID. All right. And we give glory to God for that. And we're grateful for that. You're going to hear some stories that we haven't lost anybody. Frankly, it may not be totally accurate, but they're going to tell you we haven't lost anybody. And again, be grateful for that. But I can tell you from our research, the majority of churches, Southern Baptist churches, are experiencing 20 to 30 percent less in attendance. Now, that surprises us. Remember back in March of 2020, when this first came down? We were like, man, I can't wait. We even thought for a while we might be back by Easter, might be back by Mother's Day. Remember that? I did. <laughs> yeah, I do, I yeah. Well, pastor saying that a lot. Oh, we're gonna yeah. be back. We're gonna be back. Yeah, we're gonna be back. Can't wait till we get back. We get back. We're never gonna take gathering for church for granted again. We're never gonna take singing together again for granted. But we didn't come back. We didn't come back for four months, five months, six months, eight months, ten months. Some of us twelve months. And when we came back. We didn't all come back at once. It wasn't like, okay, next Sunday, mask are off. Everything's normal. We all come back. It was a trickle. And so the reality of it is we weren't ready for this. And uh, God was, but we weren't. And so uh, we've got about 20% of our attenders who are never going to come back. And you just have to accept it. Again, I'm not telling you to embrace that fact, but you have to accept that fact. Uh, I, you know, I, um, I love, I love, 
K-State football, right? I, I love it, you know. But, uh, man, I'll tell you what, Oklahoma beats us a lot, you know. I accept that fact, but I don't embrace that fact. <laughs> There's a difference between the two. So you just got to accept the fact that that's the new reality. And, and we'll talk later about how God is going to use that for his glory, because I really believe he is. I, I don't think it's necessarily a failure. I, I do want to say, too, that maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but the majority of those people who don't come back, they were all there. There was a process in their life already in place to leave before COVID came. COVID just sped it all up and they might've trickled out over the next three or four years and you wouldn't really have noticed it. But COVID it's like when, when, when COVID came, if you had a pre-existing health condition, you were much more susceptible to COVID than other people. Well, these people had some kind of pre-existing spiritual condition in their life and where they might've been, we're all going to lose 20% of our people in the next five or six years. That I shouldn't say that's an overstatement, but pretty much we do. I mean, churches do not stay the same. If your church is absolutely at the same number year after year after year, you're reaching new people because you're losing people. But this just the people that might have trickled out and it wouldn't have been quite as noticeable because you would have replaced them as they left. You don't replace them because they're, they're gone. They all leave at once. Basically, they don't come back and you can't replace them. So you notice the 20 percent. But there were already things going on in their life that that was that were there that you didn't see. For example, maybe they just maybe that long ago they lost the joy of church and maybe they really there's something going on in their disciple life that they just were really cold and indifferent but they were too embarrassed to not go to church they didn't want to talk about it they didn't want a pastor calling them they didn't want their Sunday school teacher call them so they kind of came to church every Sunday they you know they might have been involved in volunteering serving with youth or with children and they didn't enjoy it but they, they were the kind of people that if they signed up for something, they're going to do it. Well, COVID comes. That's a great excuse to say I'm not coming back. So I think that's a lot of what happened. Here's a follow-up question. I'm going to toss this one over to you, Rolando, and let you answer it. And then, Mark, if you want to comment on it as well as you can. So if this is going on and some of our pastors are struggling with this, do we need maybe to redefine or, or some kind of new definition of success? I'll give you an example of that. You know, for some pastors in the past, it's been two percent growth in our worship attendance or in a small group or maybe with our budget or something like that is that's how we define success so is should there be a new way of defining success in in this new normal oh yes and i and i believe i strongly believe that we should change that even before uh COVID. uh what i mean is um taking the 20 to 25 percent of people leaving would give you a good chunk of people still in your church to be concentrated in. You know, um, let's say let's say you have been trying to get people inside of your Sunday service. This is this is pretty much how we measure success, right? Um, how about now uh, talking about you know how many people are you actually um, uh, discipling one one? Or how many how many new uh, leaders? How many new uh, uh, people from your church is actually getting one or two of their fellow members and, and starting this this small super small uh, uh, discipleship groups? In in my opinion, this is the perfect time of, to do it. You know, uh, after all these years, people people that stay are eager for some kind of answers or for some kind of 
a, a, a new approach is not only going on Sundays and worshiping, is also getting a, a deeply relationship that they didn't have for 12 months. So it's this is this is the right time to start doing it. And in my opinion, that should be our new measure, you know, of success. How, how many people are we discipling? How many people are discipling others? And uh, and 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 this is this is this is something that everybody can start doing. It don't, no matter how big your congregation is, you you can do that. You can you can start that in your in your church. It may be that some of the questions we're asking or have been asking are very easily measured, and some of the things we need to be asking are not as easily measured. Maybe that's maybe that's another way of saying that. Mark, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I haven't been a Southern Baptist all my life. When you want to know how a church is doing, you ask one question. Don't how many you're running? That's yeah. the question we ask. And if you're running more than you're running last year, then you're doing well. And that is so got so many faults with it. It's not original with me. I don't know who first said it, but I quote it all the time. Your church does not have a giving problem. It does not have an evangelism problem. It does not have an attendance problem. It does not have a volunteer problem. It has a discipleship problem. Mm. <clears throat> because if we make disciples, they'll give, they'll volunteer, they'll share their faith, and they'll be faithful. And so it's just that simple. And so in our book, I mean, first thing, I, when I was at Warnell and I went to this church that had, had 18 remaining members and 18 main attenders, rather, 18 people that showed up on the first Sunday I was there in a sanctuary that seated 610. You want to, you want to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew it seated 610 because there was a sign above the door that said fire code occupancy 610. So I knew I could squeeze 592 more in there if they showed up. So, you know, you try to preach into 18 people in a sanctuary seated 610. I mean, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a chore. So what did I do? I'm a church planter all my life. So what did I do? I changed the name of the church. I get a new logo. I get a new website. I bring in a band. I'm going to preach some great messages and we're going to send out some direct mail and we're going to attract people. And guess what? People are not attracted to a dying church. I'm just, I'm just telling you they're not. And I dug that hole deeper. I was there for, for the first three years and I just tried everything attractional I could and nothing worked. And one day, I remember something that uh, Henry Blackaby said. He said, your remaining members are not an obstacle to your ministry. They are your ministry. Mm -hmm. And I realized I needed to focus on, I needed to fall in love. This is from Jared Wilson. I needed to fall in love with the church I had, not the church I wish I had. Mm, and I, I had to love the remaining members and get their hearts to warm to the gospel. Even though they were in their 80s, I had to disciple them. And when we began to focus on discipleship and on making the community noticeably better. So here's our pattern for success. Making disciples that make disciples that result in the community being noticeably better. If you have a pattern of doing that, you are a successful church. And so at the North American Mission Board on our team of replant, we define success, not do you have more this year than you had last year. We do not use that metric. We define success. Do you have a pattern of making disciples who can make disciples? And is your community where your church located noticeably better because your people are there? And if you do that, you're being revitalized. You know, what I love about what you just said is that principle uh, is transferable to any church, not just a church that's being planted or a church that's being replanted or revitalized. Okay, I want to talk about and maybe spend the rest of our time maybe on some positive and negative trends. So uh, I'm going to toss it to you first, Rolando. I want you to think about two or three top trends uh, from church health, planting, multiplication perspective 
Uh, and let's talk about two or three maybe negative trends first, and then we'll end on the positive. And so Mark, you'd be ready with two or three negatives. So give me a couple of the trends maybe you're seeing from the church planting multiplication perspective, uh, and they don't necessarily have to be related to, to COVID, but they could be. Yeah. Um, these are two trends that I've been noticing for years. I mean, not only this time. You know, uh, and, and the first one is the lack of leadership development. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a real problem with leadership in our churches. And, um, and this is something that any, again, any church of any size, of any age, can start right away. Um, NAN has a great, great leadership pipeline. But if, if they don't want to use it because, I don't know, because of technological issues or whatever, I mean, this, the local associations or the state conventions can go and help each pastor to start creating their own, you know, uh, leadership pipeline so they can start training people for leadership. That's, that's the number one, in my opinion. The second one is the concept of discipleship. I mean, we are discipling people or we are just educating and informing people. Um, I can see, I can see over and over again, uh, no matter, again, no matter the size, no matter the, the age of the, uh, of the church, uh, discipleship is conceived as a translation of information. That's it. Uh, so you have people that know a lot, but do very little. And, 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 and we need to shift that. We need to create a discipleship that is more practical. I'm not against teaching. Of course, I, I'm, I, love, I love teaching. But if your teaching is not moving people, is not putting people on the street, is not putting people on the community, is not putting people you know, in, in, in the lives of others, so your discipleship is not is not that at all. I mean, it's just just a class, and I I'm I'm, I'm a little tired of classes. I, I want to see life changing uh, discipleship, and that in my opinion, those two trends, and uh, and I, I can say I mean I, probably it's not a trend. Probably it's just a symptom of something really really bad happening. Uh, but in, those are the main uh, concerns in my at, at least for me. I've heard it said that oftentimes we do too much to teach for informational purposes rather than transformational purposes, and our teaching should lead to transformation, which ultimately leads to multiplication, making more disciples. Yeah. Mark, give me a couple of, of negative trends you're seeing that concern you, maybe things we need to respond to. Yeah, I, I think, you know, one is um, making decisions based on not losing people instead of making decisions based on how to reach the community. Sometimes when churches begin to decline, they, 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 they shift from their mission, which is pretty obvious to make disciples and make community knows to be better to not losing people. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, you really, in a sense, you give away leadership because if someone kind of threatens that they might leave if you don't do this or if we do do this, well, we can't lose anybody else. And so you really lose leadership. It's kind of subtle. And, and certainly we, we want to be gracious to people and we want to be kind to people. 
but we lose our vision when we do that. And I see it all the time in dying churches is that they, they make decisions based on not losing anybody else. Mm. And they ought to be making decisions based on what Jesus wants them to do in order to embrace the community, love the community, serve the community and, and reach the community. And so I think there's a very, I see that constantly. The other thing is part of that is too, many churches, the best resource they have or the only resource they have, some of them is their building. And I think the first thing I always stop to ask is how, how is the community benefiting from your building each week? I mean, here's this great big facility or this small facility or whatever facility, but you got a physical facility here. How, how is the community? And they look at me like weird. What do you mean? What, how's the community? Well, I mean, seriously, how's the You got a building here. How, how are you making available? How are you letting the community? Well, the community can't use our building. There's all kinds of ways the community can use your building. You start with that. I mean, every I could go on all day on that. And, you know, the dying churches I've worked with have no money and very few people, but they got a building. So the first thing we do is say, okay, how do we release this building? How do we, how do we let the community use it? How do we find ways to bless the community by sharing this building with organizations and with people? And, you know, simple thing, like when we were at Warnell, we had a, there was a neighborhood association around our church and they had a neighborhood associational newsletter. And we just put in that newsletter, look, if you have a family gathering, a family reunion or something, or a you need to have a use a, a fellowship hall for a family issue, uh, man, go on our website, fill out this thing, and we, you can use our place for free. Now, I realize as I say that, you're going to have kitchen committee members whose heads are going to explode. But the reality of it is, don't you want people in your neighborhood in your building? I mean, don't you? And, to, and you have people there hosting it, right? So you're opening the doors, letting them in, and, you know, why not? And I, I just think, we just got to get out of this mindset that it's all about how many people we can get in the pews on Sunday morning. How do we get people? It's a little bit like, here's the deal. We've got to answer this question. Is the church here for the community or is the community here for the church? Mm. And for far too long, we've seen the community as something that serves the church. We're going to grow our church off the community. Like we're a car dealership and everybody out there is a potential customer. And we're going to grow our car dealership off. Look, I know everybody out there is a potential convert. I, I get that. And, and I know we use the word prospect in a good way. But on the other hand, the community hears us talk that way and thinks that we're just trying to grow our agenda off of them. Mm-hmm. When really what the community needs to know is we just love them. We're mm-hmm. just there to serve them. We're there to embrace them in all their hurt and their need. We're there to bring Jesus to them. As I've always said, a lot of times we'll have block parties, right? And I go to a dying church and they'll say, well, we don't do block parties anymore. What do you mean you don't do? Well, we did a block party. We had several of them. They go, Remember, Bob, we had a block party. We had a moonwalk. And we had snow cones and we painted faces and parking lot was filled. And then on Sunday, no, none of them came. And I said, well, they didn't come because on Sunday you didn't have a moonwalk and snow cones and you weren't painting faces. <laughs> you don't have a block party to get the people in the neighborhood into your church building. You have a block party to get the people in your church building into the lives of the people in the neighborhood. It's a completely different way of looking at it. And so that's what we need to do. It reminds me, we here where I serve on staff, uh, we started asking those hard questions numbers years ago. And it reminds me of a book we read. We read a book by Robert Lewis called The Church of Irresistible Influence. Mm-hmm. really challenges churches to think about how you're getting into the community and becoming a partner to influence your community uh, and to love just simply to love them. And it, it's really radically changed the way we view how we can communicate and connect with our community. Great things. Okay. A couple of positive trends. Uh, Mark, I'm going to start with you this time. So 
Hopefully you had a rest there. So give us a couple of positive trends that I think maybe can be an encouragement to our pastors. And I know you've alluded to that a little bit already. Yeah. Some of these guys that are struggling and, and uh, I heard someone say this, this is probably one of the greatest times in decades for us to hit the reset button as pastors and as church visionaries. Listen, God, God is, God's in control of everything. And so we look at COVID and go, oh my goodness, we've lost 20, 25% of our people. We've lost some of our volunteers. We've lost all this momentum. The adversary wants us to think that. I look at it and say, what is God doing here? And here's the reality, church. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. My great grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor. I lived my whole life inside the Southern Baptist ghetto. I hardly ever crawl over the walls. I mean, this is who I am. And so I know we, we've got a lot of a lot of issues, but here's what I do know. If, if, if God's doing something in our midst by shaking these things up, we've got to respond to that in a way that says God's about to do something pretty amazing because here's what I, here's what I do know being Southern Baptist all my life. We no longer have the, uh, we don't have the uh, luxury of being a mile wide and an inch deep. We don't have that luxury anymore. When, 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 my, when my dad pastored back in the night, I live in Kansas, right? And so we love basketball out here. So when my dad pastored in the 1960s and 50s, it was like the University of Kansas playing every game at home at Allen Fieldhouse. Still had to play the game, but everybody in the stands was rooting for you. When I come along and plant churches in the, even in Georgia in the 80s and the 90s, it was like K-State, KU rather, playing every game at a neutral setting. Today, when we do ministry, it's like KU playing every game at Duke. Nobody's cheering for you. you got the culture against you. You still, you know, and so I, I, we, we can't be a mile wide and inch deep. We can't just talk about trying to get bigger numbers. We have to deal with people in, in deep ways and theological ways and doctrinal ways. As my brother said, Jesus said, make disciples, teach them to observe, not just know. Observe means to do all that I've commanded you. So how are they living that out? And so, I mean, that is, and I see a trend finally where we're really beginning to say, you know, it's just as important what you do with those who show up as it is how many show up on Sunday. Mm. And that's what we, that's the most important thing. We've got to remind ourselves of that because I want to tell you something. A lot of guys who want really big churches, when they get to heaven, and they have to give an account for every single soul in their care, they're going to think their church was plenty big enough. I mean, you, you have to give an account. You want all those people there? You've got to figure out some way that their soul is being cared for. It's not just that you show up and preach to them once a week. It's that they are in your care. And so I really see uh, an encouraging thing that we're looking more, what do we do with the ones who are here rather than just gathering a large crowd? And less and less, I hope, man, I, my whole passion for the last part of my life is to sing the praises of the normative size church. And I call it normative size. Tom Rainer says that's not the right worst use of the word, but I don't care. Um, by that, I mean 90% of all Southern Baptist churches are less than 200, 250. So we say we're going to have a small church conference. We're not going to have a small church conference. We're going to have a conference for 90% of all churches. And I have four grandsons. If my daughter-in-laws take those boys to the pediatrician, he says they're in the 90th percentile. That means only 10% of the boys in the world are bigger than them at that age. If your church is in the 90th percentile, you can't be small. 
your normal. And I hope we understand the power in the normative size church because there's so many of us. Guys, if you took every Southern Baptist pastor who preached to more than 1,500 last weekend, you're going to find this hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. You could put them all on one Air France jumbo jet, about 518. You took every one of us who preached to less than 250, you'd fill every seat in Kansas City Royals baseball stadium, over 40,000. The adversary knows the real challenge to him is the 40,000 normative-sized churches in every neighborhood, every community, every county. And if those became places where disciples were made and communities were transformed, that would be a game changer. Oh, such a good word. Thank you for that, Mark. Rolando, what would you add to that? Man, how do you jump on in after that? Man? <laughs> I, will, I will maybe add to what just uh, Mark said. And, um, and I will say that after talking with several pastors, I uh, after COVID, I realized they are feeling now the opportunity to get the momentum, you know, to use this momentum. Several different things have been happening in their churches that they didn't expect at all during COVID, like people rising up and, 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 and taking care by mail, by phone calls, by video calls uh, to other members, you know, so, and that that is like a little snowball that were, was, was growing over the months and 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 now they know they can they can pastor the church in a different way like like releasing this this new pastor pastoral people that were actually you know raised up by god during the, the, the during the covid uh, situation and, and and i'm excited about that because this is the first great step to create a more discipleship environment in the in their churches and at the same time to create a a, a normal kind of uh, leadership development with these guys i mean i'm i'm, I'm excited about it and, they, and they're seeing it they're seeing it they were they were desperate in the you know during those times but it, and some didn't see that happening until some months you know so like you were talking to them and they were like, oh, you, you know what happened in my church? You know, that that old lady that were, you know, now she is in in, in charge of a big group of, 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 of younger women and, and, and she is calling them and she is discipling them and she is praying for them. And this new uh, uh, prayer group just started because of this couple. It, it's amazing. I mean, the stories are amazing, and I hope I hope this momentum is actually um, used by our pastors to to build up uh, on them. Well, one more thing I think is important is that you know, if your iPhone or your Android phone, you've got a lot of of uh, apps that run in the background. You know, you don't use anymore, and they drain your battery. COVID is a great time to come back after COVID and say, okay. It, we're going to find uh, success is making disciples that make disciples that result in community transformation. Then what do we have that we don't need anymore? And let's, let's don't bring those back. And that'll save us battery power. That'll save us volunteer power. It gives us margin. We need to, we need to focus on, we need to do less. We need to do less, but we need to do it better. We need to be more, more agile. We need to pivot quicker and a lot of stuff that takes up a lot of energy. And I know sometimes people say, well, we can't quit doing that ministry because that's Miss Mary's ministry. And she finds her real purpose in that. 
I don't think we have, we don't have the, we don't have the bandwidth to do that anymore. Now I realize I'm not Miss Mary's pastor. You are. So <laughs> it's easy for me to say that, but eventually we got to get to the place that we're not doing ministry based on what our people like and what makes them feel good, but is it really effective and making disciples and transforming the community? That's right. That's great. That's good. You know, there was a book written a number of years ago. I think the guy's name that wrote it was Isam, and he said, you know, sacred cows make great gourmet burgers. And so <laughs> sometimes we need to think about what are the sacred cows. And probably a lot of our churches are over-programmed and just don't, don't realize that. Um, uh, our pastor said here a couple of months ago, he said a lot of churches, including ours, like to be led where they already want to go instead of where God wants them to go. And, and maybe it's time to reassess some of those things and find out what is it that's really going to help us make disciples who make disciples who impact our community. Great word. Okay. I know we're about out of time, but I kind of want to turn it back towards discipleship and, and specifically towards these pastors and, and church leaders that might be watching the video today. So here's the last question. Just give it a little short, short answer to this. I know personally as a pastor serves on staff full time and then does this consulting stuff for the state that, uh, that, you know, there's all these things that are, are competing for my time. And I'm sure that's even more the case for church planters and church planting pastors. So what words of advice would you give or encouragement would you give to our Georgia Baptist leaders about the priority of disciple making, not only in their church, but also in their personal lives, being a personal disciple making, making sure that they have margin in their lives to be a personal disciple maker as they lead their churches to be disciple making churches. Well, when I was at Warnell and tried for three years to bring it back through attractional kind of stuff and God um, got my attention, told me that wasn't going to happen. I was bivocational. I left the director of missions position so I could spend my, spend my time at the Warnell church. And I got a secular job for the first time since high school when I worked at Jack in the Box. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was working 45 hours a week and then trying to replant a church. And God just got a hold of my life and said, look, you want, you know, I began to understand the importance of discipleship. And I, be, I know enough about pastoring to know this because my dad was a pastor and my great grandfather. Church isn't going to do anything I don't do. Mm -hmm. And I, if I can't ask them to do something, I'm not doing. So if discipleship is important, I have to be a discipler. And I also know young men are key to a church's growth and foundation. And so I told the Lord, I said, look, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I will clear off the deck and I will make the top priority in my ministry after my walk with Jesus and my time with my wife. The second, the third priority will be to disciple a young man you bring across my path, maybe to lead him to Christ and disciple him. And it took more than almost a year before I found one. I mean, I, you can't, you can't say, well, I don't know where to find one. Well, you got to find one. You got to look, if you're a pastor, and in a year or two, you can't find one young man to disciple. You need to really reconsider if you've got the right calling. I'm sorry to say that, but your church is never going to be what you're not. And, uh, and, and sometimes guys don't know how to disciple because they've never been discipled. And that's another issue for another day. But when I finally, God brought a young man to my path of all things, a young man from India who was a brand new Christian. We, we knew nothing about each other's cultures. I mean, I was nothing but an evangelical subculture person and he didn't know any evangelicals. He was, he was the only Christian in his whole family, but God brought us together. I began to disciple him and guess what? He discipled me. And it was a two-way street. And I grew by leaps and bounds by discipling Kumar. And Kumar really, and, and that changed everything. I mean, wasn't long till Kumar brought a young man. And then he brought a young man. 
And then that's when the, if you read the, read our book, Reclaiming Glory, that's, it is all about discipling young men that changed that church. And it didn't happen quick. And it never, it never, it never became huge. You know, to this day, Warnell's bigger after I left because churches do better after I leave. But to this day, it, it's about 150 people. It's not going to make the front page of any magazine. I mean, it's, it's, it's a normative sized church, but it's a church that was 18 and now it's 150. And over half the people who worshiped there the last Sunday I was there, over half the people could have walked to church if they needed to. So we're a neighborhood church. That's another topic for another day, the importance. We've lost the neighborhood church. So anyway, but discipleship. So you got to create those margins. Even though if you're bivocational, you do anything else, it's either important or it's not important. And when your people see you create margins, then they know it's important. And what's important to you becomes important to them. Orlando, any last words there on that? Yeah, I mean, just just stop activism as your call. It's not. I mean, if you are in a church and you believe that being active uh, every single day trying to do something uh, with programs, with, uh, with projects, uh, will make you a better pastor or leader. Stop thinking about that. Just trying to go to the Bible and try to find someone inside your church or outside your church to start discipling this person with the, with the view on this person to become a disciple maker as well. I mean, you need to start with that multiplication mindset uh, and, 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 you know, pass that along with everybody that you are uh, deciding. In, in my opinion, that's the best way of being obedient to Matthew 28. Well, thank you guys so much, Rolando, uh, Castro, Mark Clifton. Thank you guys for being our guest today and just for really uh, sharing some of your expertise and being an encouragement to our leaders here in Georgia. I also want to thank Mike Taylor for producing for us today. And I also want to remind you to leave a comment to be entered into our weekly drawing for resources. Uh, if, you, if you have a chance, share the link uh, that's uh, here and, and, and tell some folks about our broadcast. Invite them to be a part of this as well. Thank you so much for being with us today as an audience and for engaging with us as we seek to make disciples, world-impacting disciples who will in turn make more disciples. Thanks for listening to Georgia Baptist Discipleship Podcast. And we want to give you a gift. The five discipleship shifts most churches need to make to produce world-impacting disciple makers. You can get this by going to ministryboom.com forward slash the number five discipleship shifts.com. That's ministryboom.com forward slash the number five discipleship shifts.com. This five-page PDF is a discipleship alignment checklist that may surprise you. It will help you learn why programs are killing your discipleship. The number one default worker strategy that keeps churches from empowering their ministries. Learn the OGV factor and how it can revolutionize discipleship, attendance, and evangelism in your church. Again, go to ministryboom.com forward slash the number five discipleship shifts Com. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board is able to provide resources like this because of gifts from Georgia Baptist to the cooperative program. For more information on this broadcast and a customized discipleship plan for your church, visit gabaptist.org forward slash discipleship. And by the way, if you found this content helpful, 
we sure hope you'll share it with a friend. And thanks so much for partnering with us to make world-impacting disciple-makers.